encourage you as we go to the book of Colossians. We have finished our series on the will of God. We're going to start today a series on the book of Colossians. It's going to be a verse-by-verse study. And we'll just as long as it takes for us to get through that book, we'll, we will do that. Um, but if you read every single letter that Paul writes, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, and Titus wrote most of the New Testament, all of those epistles in that chronological order, his introductory statements are literally a rubber stamp. They say the same thing. Before, in, it, it's just easy uh, to read the opening statements of one of the books of Scripture and to miss the significance of it. One of my professors in the College of Biblical Studies, he used to call them flyover verses. We just fly right over verses trying to get to a series of verses or teaching uh, because we feel like that's where the meat is. And so many years ago, studying the introductory statements of the Apostle Paul, uh, it was such a tremendous uh, blessing for me personally because as I understood the introductory statements, then the meat or the doctrine or the theology that come out of the letters really began to resonate. And because all of those introductory statements, and of course, Paul would write to Timothy in second chapter or second Timothy chapter three, verse 16, he would write about scripture. He would say all scripture, all scripture is inspired of God for teaching and reproof and rebuke and the training of uh, the man of God in righteousness. So his introductory statements are holy in spirit inspired words of scripture. And so we, we, we might fly over them, but here is something as we start this study and, and I really do, I believe it's paramount because it speaks to two things that we want to discuss this morning. Um, his introductory statements establish God's relationship with him and his relationship with God. I mentioned to the youth group this morning, and Grace was a, Grace was a light this morning. She was, she, it shouldn't surprise you, but she was way out ahead of the Stasny boys. And, uh, and uh, yeah, and she really, she was, boy, she was on it this morning. I really appreciate all their hearts. Uh, but I asked them uh, to describe uh, their relationship with their parents. Tell me about the relationship you have with your parents. Your best friend. Tell me about the relationship you have with your best friend. Um, how would they describe your relationship? And I did think the Stasny boys were good too. So, I, in fact, Grace said we should have our parents come in on a Sunday morning and describe <laughs> your relationship with your children. I'm not sure we should do that, but uh, it would be entertaining and it would be enlightening. But uh, uh, so I, then I asked us, okay, so how would you describe your relationship with God? And I appreciated their answers. But here's the question that should start spiritually and intellectually and emotionally, our, our thought processes, our spiritual life. Here's the one. Here's the question. How would God describe his relationship with you? You say, well, I, I, my relationship with God, it's lacking. I need to work on it. I need to improve. It consists of prayer or worship or reading his word. 
But you probably would say, my relationship with God, my input, my activity, um, I probably need to be working on that. I hope you would say that. Um, I hope that we never are satisfied with where we're at in our relationship with God. So having said that, though, then how would you describe God's relationship with you personally? Not, not just religiously or, you know, I mean, don't, I mean, how, if you had the conversation, God, tell me what you think about me right now. Tell me what's going on in your heart, in your mind, in your spirit, in your being, in your sovereignty, and you can put all the Bible words to it, and omnipotence and omnipresence and all the things that help us understand who God is. But tell me, um, how would you describe your relationship with me? And you could, you could just check some things off. Obviously, you might say, well, I love you. And I've proved that I loved you. And the reason you love me is because I've loved you first. God would only say the things that would be evident and true in his word. So he would say, I love you. And I proved my love for you through the sacrifice of my son. And you love me because I loved you first. And I've forgiven you. I have forgiven you. You needed forgiving. And you, you, you need forgiveness. Not forgiving in the past, but forgiveness perpetually. And I'm molding you. I, uh, I'm, I'm the potter and you're the clay. And so I'm molding you. And, and I have story after story after story after story in my, in my holy word that shows my hands on people. My nation, my people, my children. I, I'm molding. You're the clay, I'm the potter. He would say that. He would say, I discipline you. Right out of the book of Hebrews. And I discipline you because I love you. So our relationship, his relationship with me, consists of discipline, molding. Uh, Jesus says that he's the author and perfecter of faith. And so as I'm molding you and disciplining you um, and uh, allowing you to suffer, allowing you to suffer indignities, allowing you to suffer persecutions, allowing you to suffer, for my glory, my relationship, our relationship, his relationship with me consists of that. Just ask Job, Elijah, any of the prophets of old, the apostles, and any lay Christian understanding that God's relationship with him as he is molding us and Jesus Christ is authoring and perfecting faith in me and he's disciplining me as a father disciplines his child. That's what his relationship would consist of. So, but I want to take you back to that introductory statement. And I want you to, we're going to be in Colossians. So go to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And these are, and again, you could read every introductory statement that he makes 
in all of his letters, and this is the this is the rubber stamp, the blueprint. This is the doctrine, the theology uh, of this. So, verse one, chapter one of Colossians, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Everything that he has to say now, uh, the meat that you, you and I might consider meat in this letter has to do with these opening statements because it describes this it emphasizes, it's emphatic in that this is my identity based upon God's relationship with me and my relationship with God. And then I ask kids, how often do you think about your relationship with God? How often do you think about God's relationship with you? So here's a statement. There's nothing in your life that you own, have, have owned, will own. There's nothing in your life there's not one moment, one second, one relationship, one, one anything in your life that is more important than God's relationship with you and your relationship with God. We spend a whole lifetime spinning wheels. We're like that gerbil. And we're just in that thing. Just, you just, we're just busy, 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 busy. Worried, 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 worried. Attaining, 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 and getting, and getting, and getting. And we're just doing that. We're just, we're just, we're just, and we are. And so much of our day-to-day living is not based upon the thinking and then the driving force in the relationship to that thinking of, I need to first primarily think the most valuable thing that I will ever have is God's relationship with me and my relationship with God. What if your thinking 24-7 was really established on those two most valuable things? We spend a lot of time wasting a lot of time. We spend a lot of time worrying about things that don't have anything to do with our relationship with God and his relationship with me. The Proverbs said, there's a way that seems right to man, but, but it's really just a pathway to death. There's a way that seems right unto a man, but it's just going to end up in death. I can't tell you, you know, when you read a scripture, we just read one last week about pray without ceasing. Well, how could I do that? Well, how many times should I forgive somebody? Peter said, Did you, seven times? No, 70 times seven. And you could just go on and on. Do not forsake the assembling of the saints. Where do you want to start? Where do you want to stop? When you get into this word, the truth of this word, there's these places that just seem, I can't do that. That's impossible. How could I do that? We're going to look at one of those in just a moment. Well, you and I will never be able to reach the admonition of Scripture, the instruction of Scripture, the rebuke, the reproof, and the training of Scripture unless we have established in our mind, our heart, and our spirit Two, the two most valuable things. It's not your cattle. It's not your ranch. It's not your house. It's not your marriage. It's not your children. It's not your health. It's not your 401k. It's not. The two most important, most valuable things that you will ever have in your life is God's relationship with you and your relationship with God, period. How much time do you spend thinking about that? How much time, parents, do you spend emphasizing that to your children. Shouldn't that be a part of your daily conversation? Shouldn't you as parents, 
have a daily conversation. Now, I did say to the youth group, I know David and Dawn Kalenbrink. I know Laura, uh, uh, Lawrence and Barbara Carranza. I know Mark and Shelly Stasny. I know Paul and Melinda Jenkins. They're in the class. And I, and I said to them this, I said, now, they know that. I know them well enough that their life revolves around two things. I know it. Their life revolves around God's relationship with them and their relationship with God. It does. I have no doubt of that whatsoever. The scripture says, you'll know them by their fruits. I see fruit in their life. I have no doubt this man right here is driven by his relationship with God and God's relationship with you. I know you are, Johnny. And so I told him, I said, now, what makes your, that dynamic then, that truth different then you may have friends that their family, they don't have a David and a Don Kalenbrink. They don't have a Barbara and a Lawrence Carranza. They don't have a Paul and Melinda Jenkins. They don't have a Mark and Shelley Stasny. They don't have, and I could just go right on down the list, that their primary concern in their life is their relationship with God and then his relationship with them. It changes everything. And I asked them to tell me, what, how does it change? It changed the way they're loved. It's changed, it changes everything. The thing you spend money on, where you spend your time, what you spend your time on, your language, your behavior. Now, the scripture tells us, Isaiah says, do not be unequally yoked. And it's a picture of two oxes. And they've yoked them together. Bobby Curtin, you'll get this. If you got one big, strong, powerful ox and you got one, he ain't doing his job, what's going to happen? One's getting wore out, the other's getting dry, the lines aren't going to be straight. It's not going to be a productive day. The guy leading the ox, it's just not good. There was a time many, many years ago that I would marry someone, mostly it would be a Christian uh, individual to, uh, maybe they, well, not maybe, they weren't a Christian. I did a handful of those and I regret that. Now, I wouldn't do it without premarital counseling. I won't do that ever again. I haven't done that for years. The Bible says don't be unequally yoked. Don't do it. And young ladies, I'm just going to say this. In my ministry experience over the years, it's just a true. I'm not, always not making this up. Uh, young ladies, and I told Grace this this morning, if, you've got, if you're a teenage young lady and Sandy I Morgan, I'd say this to you too. I have seen more young Christian women compromising, ready to marry a, a young man that's not a Christian than the other. I have. And, and very, very rarely have I seen it turn out well. And what I have always seen is there's misery associated with it. Because one person has this, my primary, maybe I don't even speak it, but my primary concern in my life is God's relationship with me and my relationship with God. Don't be unequally yoked. The Bible says Paul writes, bad company corrupts good morals. You've seen it. It's hard to be a Christian today. And especially hard to be a young teenager or a child going to a public school. I'm not, I'm not going to put Just call it what it is. And to live out that faith with a primary concern, my relationship with God, his relationship with me. It's just hard. It's difficult. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. We can't love mammon 
and God. If your primary concern is mammon and filthy lucre and money, it'll never be my relationship with God and his relationship with me. It'll be money. It'll be a 401k. It'll be mine and my stuff. And Paul establishes, and before you want to learn any doctrine that come out of these great letters, you better understand the primary concern of the Holy Spirit-filled, sealed, inspired man, individual that writes those verses. And he says over and over and over again, I'll tell you where my identity is. My identity is wrapped up in God's relationship with me and my relationship with God. You want to get rid of problems in your life? You want to get rid of stress in your life? You want to get rid of anger in your life, anxiety in your life? Make God the thoughts in your heart, in your mind, in your spirit. Make it, I today, today, but you know what? Today is the day the Lord has made. I'm going to rejoice and be happy in it. I'm going to be, whether it's a drought or a famine or a thunderstorm or whatever's happening, I'm going to rejoice because he has given me life. My primary concern is my relationship with God. And the scripture says, and this is just a starting point, I'm to rejoice in today because this is the day that he has made. It has nothing to do with the farmer's almanac. It has nothing to do with whether you think you're getting enough rain for your crops. It has nothing to do whether you're having to live through a, a, a severe drought. or fa- It's a day that the Lord has made. And it's not for your purposes. It's for his purposes. Shouldn't that change the way you think? Shouldn't that change your daily approach to things? But we do, don't we? And he says, let me tell you who I am. Let me rubber stamp this. Uh, we'll, talk about, we'll talk about predestination. I'll talk to you about the predetermined plan of God as he wrote the Ephesians. I'll talk to you about your morality as he wrote the Corinthians. I'll talk to you about life after death as he wrote the Thessalonians. I'll talk to you about worshiping angels as he talked to the Colossians. He said, before I talk to you about any of those things, I'll talk to you about unity, and I'll talk to you about the freedom you have in Christ as he wrote the Galatians. But before we do that, Before we do that, we're going to talk about God. We're going to talk about my relationship with God. We're going to talk about his relationship with me. And what would you say? What would you say? Jeff, what do you say? Well, I'm Jeff, and uh, I'm a businessman, and, uh, you know, uh, because I decided I want to do that. You might say, well, I'm Jeff, and I'm a businessman, and uh, uh, I'm a citizen of the United States, and it's just something that was in my heart. Paul, he removes all that. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. You know who he is. Every letter. Sent by God, not by men. Not by the agency of men. By the will of God. I am who I am. Now, he was an apostle. Let me just give you a little point here. This is a side note. If somebody calls themselves apostle today, God bless them, they're just misinformed. There's no apostles. The very nature of the word, and it has to do with his identity, God's relationship with him, his relationship with God. An apostle literally meant, and it would have only been, well, if you took, you have to do the, if you want to really get technical, there would have been 14. And so they were the individuals that had an eyewitness relationship with the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And he gave a a handful of individuals, the title of apostle, that that meant this will be an individual that I send into the world to proclaim my gospel out of the Old Testament scripture, knowing New Testament scripture would be written, 
and that the, the mission of God would be accomplished as we now, Jesus Christ resurrected into heaven, there's going to be these individuals who are eyewitnesses to the life of my son, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. No one fits that today. There's not a single living person. If they call himself apostle, God bless them. I, they'll need God's blessing. They're very incorrect. And it's not based upon a relationship with God and God's relationship with them. Maybe based upon something else. Don't know. But I have to say that. He could say that he was an apostle. You and I can't. We can't say that. The very etymology, the very nature of the word is that somebody who actually saw it happen with their eyes. So that's who he was. He did not say that proudly. He would go on to say that I am the least of all the apostles. The least. I think sometimes today, uh, religious figureheads like titles. You call me pastor and that's fine. I have no problem with that. I just assume you call me Aubrey or Brother Rogers. I think sometimes titles can be, uh, say more about my relationship with me in the world from a religious place than God's relationship with me and my That's my belief. It's when we use a title associated in scripture, we have to use it, be very careful and humble with it. We better not be honoring ourselves. We better not. The honor comes from God and what he's done in our life. So I just have to make that point. But he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, of Jesus Christ, of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. If there's ever a statement that identifies who someone is, it would be that. My name is this. This is who I am. Now, there was a time when he was called Saul. Then he, just, he used his Roman name, Paul, as he became, uh, it was very common for the use of two names 2,000 years ago. He had his Jewish name, Saul, and then he had the Roman name, Paul. And as he became a, mission, a, a minister and a missionary into the Gentiles, he used his uh, Roman name. But he knew what his name, he knew who he was, and he knew of and the will of who he was do you what would people say well i'm i'm so and so and so of of whatever by the will of what wednesday i ask all our teenagers I said, you know, the Stasny boys like to shoot. The Brockman kids, uh, they do cross country and uh, volleyball. Haley does volleyball. Uh, we do shooting, baseball. Stephen Brockman, Grace plays tennis. And, and I asked him, I said, so what you do, um, was it your will or your parents' will? And they said, well, it was my will. I decided I wanted to play baseball. Well, it was my mom and dad's will. Okay, this is something that I do. And whose will was it? Well, it was me. I made that decision. Christians, this is the single most important thing. It'll clear up. It'll help you shape. <laughs> this will do it. 
And this is where I think the church and many Christians have been in the greatest error in their walk with God. But this clears it up. You should be able to say, I am a Christian wife of Jesus Christ by the will of God. I am a Christian husband of Jesus Christ by the will of God. I am a Christian businessman of Jesus Christ by the will of God. I am a Christian rancher of Jesus Christ by the will of God. I'm an engineer. I'm a college graduate. I'm a whatever of Jesus Christ by the will of God. If you can't say that, you will always have problems in your relationship with God. He won't have a problem in his relationship with you because he's going to continue to mold and discipline and let you suffer. But you'll have, you will. God's the ultimate gentleman. But so you ought to ask yourself, are you a Christian wife? Are you a Christian mother? Are you a Christian grandparent? Are you a Christian husband? Are you a Christian businessman? Are you a Christian jailer? Casey, are you a Christian employee, employer? Whatever it is, Jesus says, if all I give you is a cup of water, that's all I want from you. But there will be an accounting. And if you want peace in your Christian life, Jesus said, I came so that you might have life and have it more abundantly. You, this is what you have to understand. You want harmony in your marriage? This is what you need to understand. You want harmony in, through the difficulties of raising your children? This is what you need to understand. You want to have harmony as you grow older and the body's falling apart? You want to be like Paul where he write the Philippians, he's a prisoner, and he said, man, I'm going to tell you, I've learned the secret to be content in every circumstance, with or without. Man, I'm going to progress the gospel to live as the, Christ and to die as God. No matter how old I am, no matter how bad my vision's becoming, no matter how much the rheumatoid arthritis is, no matter how much I'm being conspired against, it's all right because I know who I am in God and of God, and I know all of it is based upon his will. Now, I have lots of verses here. I don't have time this morning. But if you just want to do a study on the will of God, you can't. There's not, you won't find an end to it because just about the time you think you found a verse and an end of it, that it will then blossom out to so much more and become personal in your life. John says in chapter one, here's just another one. I mean, Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, he taught us how to pray. He said, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. He's not guessing. He ain't hoping. It ain't a maybe. It's a fact. Now, we live our lives, and the sad thing is many people sitting in a pew on Sunday live their life like his will might happen, or they don't even recognize that his will is happening, and we walk around in fear. Do you think the man in the White House right now has anything to do outside the will of God? You may not like it, and it may create fear in you. Read First and Second Samuels. Read Samuel. Read First and Second Kings. Read First and Second Chronicles. Read 1 Peter. Read uh, Romans. All authority in heaven and earth has been established by God. You didn't have your votes, 84 million voters who didn't vote or did vote for the man that said, now why? It don't have nothing to do with him. Had nothing to do with him. That man is in the office. The bills that are being passed in Congress, the things that you don't like, the things that are causing you, it's the will of God. And if you have a relationship with God and you understand his relationship with you, if you understand I am so-and-so of Jesus Christ by the will of God, you're all right. It don't matter who's sitting in that White House. We've got militant, angry Christians 
fearful Christians, if you understand your relationship with God, his relationship with you, what do you have to fear? What do you have to fear? We have examples of that. Elijah became fearful after this great victory over Jezebel. And he said, it's all right. Hey, hey, listen, Elijah, I got 7,000 over here. It's good. My will be done. John the Baptist, he's down in prison. He doesn't know, are you really the Christ? Jesus said, go tell him that my will. The gospel is being preached. The oppressed are hearing freedom. The lame are walking. And John, okay. Okay. What about you? And what about me? Here's the biggest obstacle. And I'm going to finish here. I have much more to say on this. Don't have time for it. Go to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. Here's the biggest obstacle, spiritual obstacle, to you and I understanding God's relationship with me and you and us and all of it and our relationship with him. It's the biggest obstacle. Jesus tells three stories that identify our single biggest problem in understanding our relationship with God, the biggest obstacle in his relationship with us that might cause me to shudder and say, well, okay, well, I'm a Christian wife, but I don't always act like it. I'm a, am I really of Christ? I'm a Christian husband, but am I re- if I'm really of Christ by the will of God, I will love my wife the way Christ loved the church. I must not, if I can't do that, I'm not of Christ. I couldn't be. And I'm certainly operating under my will instead of his will. That's just a start. But he tells three stories. Pogo used to say, I have seen the enemy, and the enemy is me. Now, Luke in chapter 12, huh? verse 13. And someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to defy the family inheritance with me. If you, anybody in your family has ever died and there's land and wealth and riches, you could probably get a sense of that, this statement. But he said to him, man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Question that the man should have had an immediate, I'm going to tell you who the judge and arbitrator over me is, is Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's my God and Father in heaven and there's no doubt. It's not you. It's not anybody. It's not the president of the United States. It's not the county sheriff. The judge and arbiter over me is God and his son, Jesus Christ. He's sitting at the right hand of his father in heaven right now as judge and savior of all men. And he said to him, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. If your life consists of your possessions, you'll never factor in God's relationship with you and your relationship with God. And he told him a parable. The land of a certain rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, what shall I do? Just just circle the I. Just do I. Just circle I. What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build large ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I'll say to my soul, you have many goods. Say to his soul, you think about my soul. Your soul is not your soul. And if you understand your relationship with God and his relationship with you, your soul is not your soul. It's his soul. But I'll say to my soul, we're so arrogant, aren't we? Hmm. 
Man, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease. Take your ease. I, me, my, your. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. And now, who alone? What you have prepared. Jesus said, seek ye first my kingdom and all these things will be added unto you. From the day that we're born, we're building our own kingdom. And we're not seeking his. So is the man who lays up treasure for himself is not rich towards God. If you don't understand your relationship with God and his relationship with you, uh, so and so of Jesus Christ by the will of God, this is, this is one dimension. You will understand your life in light of one thing, yourself and your treasure. I can't weigh that for you. The scripture weighs it for us. Luke chapter 18. I've used this many times here. Verse 9, and he told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves. There's those who trusted in their wealth. Filthy lucre is what the Bible calls it, mammon. You can't serve mammon and God. But then there are those who trust in themselves, that they were righteous. These are the religious folks, and I got to tell you, the church is full of them. I can always tell you, when, as in a relationship in the many years of ministry, those folks who really think that this is about them, they really do. They may not be as so bold as this, but they really think this is about them. And it's the most disheartening. It, the scripture confronts us on so many different levels. Here's one of those confrontational moments. And who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. I would just say this. What right do you, in your relationship with God, in his relationship with you, if you can take the Lord, we're going to take the Lord's Supper here in a minute. If you hold anybody in contempt, please don't take it. Number one, you don't have the right to hold anyone in contempt. You to love your enemy. And if you understand your relationship with God and his relationship with you and what he did for you so that you and I could have a relationship with him, explain to God who gave his son. Johnny and I were talking before service. When he said, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Everybody thinks the criminal on the cross that came to this belief in him or the Roman centurion when he said, as the sacrificial lamb, on the day of atonement, he was the altar, he was the sin, he was the high priest, he was the scapegoat, he was the sacrificial lamb, he was the blood, and on that, just as it was established in the law of God, in the book of Leviticus, when he said, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, every single vile, deceitful, lying, corrupt, sinful, everyone received forgiveness and the atonement of their sin. And they did. What right, given that, if you understand that your relationship with God is built upon that, do you have the right to hold anyone in contempt? But there are those who do that. I found more of them in the church than I have in a beer joint. That's a fact. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and thus, and praying thus to himself. Praying to himself. 
I, me, my, your, God. This is, this is a description of his relationship with God. God, I thank thee that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax gatherer. I saw this on social media this week and I posted it. Wouldn't it be great if you hated your sin as much as you hated the sins of others? What right do you have to say to anybody that you're ashamed of them? You ought to be worried about your shame, my shame. But a righteous person will think they will. They think they have that right to hold people in contempt and pray to themselves and thank God with the great list of who they are instead of who he redeemed them from. But I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax gatherer standing some distance away was even willing to lift up his eyes to heaven, was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Don't miss the significance of that word. Powerful word. He didn't say a sinner. He said the sinner. Just like Paul would say, I am the chief of all sinners. Do you see yourself as the sinner? Not a sinner. The sinner. If you don't, you'll never be able to say, I, so-and-so, Christian wife, husband, father, grandparent, employee, I've already read, of Jesus Christ by the will of God. You'll never see yourself as the sinner. You'll see other people. I always, this is, cracks me up, and I'm going a little long this morning. God bless you. Um, and I don't mean that facetiously. But I, I, I've heard these discussions over the years about the burden of you forgiving someone. And then I've heard the answers to that, like, well, like, well, you know, really, if you don't forgive somebody, you know, you're really harming yourself. And these intellectual, and they're so unbiblical. You say, well, what's unbiblical about that? What right do you have to struggle with forgiving anyone? What right do you have to struggle with forgiving anyone? The only way you would think that is that it would be a struggle for me to forgive someone because I'm in a place where it would make it a struggle for me. Really? How's that going to work for you on the day of judgment? Or is anybody here, or do you think at any level, anybody here is in a better place, a higher place, a more substantial place that allows you the right to struggle with you forgiving someone because they've done you so poorly? In light of Jesus Christ and him crucified. You know, and I, I read this too. The same list, vice list in the scripture that says, God, homosexuality, adultery, murder. You know the two th things that are in that list? Gossip and slander. Same list. You may see a difference, God doesn't. And so, Jesus says, and this man said, Listen, me the sinner. And Jesus said, I'll tell you, this man, this man had the right relationship with God. 
and understood God's relationship with him. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. I see more exalting, personal exalting, and we're pretty good in church business. We know how to do that humbly. We can exalt. Listen, I've done it in the flesh. I've done it spiritually, unspiritually, as a forgiven sinner of God. I've, I'm guilty. I'll give you my resume. I, I, want you to, I want to feel good about myself, and I want you to feel good about myself. And the better communicators, we, it's, uh, we even become good at it, don't we? To our shame. And then the final one, right there, a rich young ruler. Just circle the personal pronoun. And a certain ruler, verse 18, questioned him, saying, good teacher, good teacher, good teacher. Look at me, good teacher. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? There's not a thing in the world you can do to inherit eternal life. Not one thing. You can't do it. It has nothing to, you can't do it. John, in John, he said, you're born not by your will, not by the flesh, and not by the will of man, but by God. You've been saved by grace through faith, that not of yourself. But we'd like to think that we contributed something to that. And it's very obvious here. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Another one of those questions. You know the commandments. You're a good old Bible reading, church going, synagogue attending Jew. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. They're getting that whole false witness thing. Uh, honor your father and mother. And he said all these things. I've kept them from my youth. I've done it. I have met those people sitting in pews. And when Jesus heard this, he said to them, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess. Your soul, you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, the things impossible with men are possible with God. Now, finish here. You know what Satan wants most of you, if you believe in, seraph, in spiritual warfare? The number one thing, to destroy your relationship with God. The most important thing that you should focus on in your relationship with God is his relationship with you, your relationship with him, according to the word of God. Satan's best weapon, number one weapon, is to get you and I to take credit for anything. For you and I to take credit for anything. I built this business. I, I, I paid the price. He loves to hear. Bobby, he loves to hear. I'm going to use the rodeo. He loves to hear rodeo cowboys talking about what a great cowboy they are. Anything, a businessman. A religious person. And he just loves it. Satan loves it when you and I take credit for anything. Anything. Johnny, you can take, you got a beautiful voice. 
You only have that voice because God gave you the gift of that voice to bring glory to him. You say, well, I'm a good businessman. That ain't your business. You have that business. And you say, well, I put in the work. You didn't put in the work. You wouldn't even have the ability, the intellectual, uh, uh, comp you wouldn't even have the mind to intellectualize the things that you had to walk through to figure out, you know, profit and loss and building. And you only have the intellect that you have, the drive that you have, the physicality that you have, because God gave it to you. The scripture says God will not share his glory in the single biggest problem in the Christian life that do not understand that I am so-and-so of Jesus Christ by the will of God is that we absolutely believe at some level that I have accomplished something on my own. And that's how he appealed to Eve in the garden. Did God really say? Well, yeah, he did say. He said, no, 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 no. But he's because he didn't want you to be like him. And I kind of like that. I want to be God, little G. I'll let him be big G on Easter and Christmas. Or when I can get to the church pew when it's convenient, when I have something worldly going on. But, but I really like being the big G in my life or the little G. This is tough stuff, guys. So as you read these introductory statements, I want to challenge you. Challenge myself. Challenge us. Where is your heart? When you start to live with the mind, heart, spirit, soul, living of Christ by the will of God, my relationship with him, his relationship. You know what? Praying without ceasing. You know what? I, God will equip me. Forgiving. 70 times, God will equip me. Oh, he's done it for me. And so on and so forth. So we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And the scripture says, if you can't do it in the right mindset, don't do it. Because you bring judgment unto yourself. This is not about you and I. It's about him. And it's not about a checklist. Well, okay. Uh, you know what it's about? Here's all you got to do to be right with God. Here's all you got to do to have the right mindset to take that Lord's Supper. Oh, dear Lord God Almighty. Have mercy on me, a sinner. That makes everything right. And now we can start, revisit, and establish our relationship with God the right way. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are indeed righteous and we are not. You have loved us before we ever loved you. You have paid every debt that I have or we have ever owed. You have covered our sins and our transgressions and our contempt. You mold us, you discipline us. And Father, I pray above all else that we can see our lives of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And it is in the will of God, in the name of the will of God, in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.